Welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On today's episode, Marvin Kalb, the founding director of the Shorenstein Center and former moderator of Meet the Press, discusses the current relationship between Russia, Ukraine, and the US, placing the situation within a larger historical context. Kalb also spoke more about US diplomacy and military actions, Russia-China relations, and Putin's circle of advisors. So welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the acting director uh, of the Shorenstein Center, and uh, and we're just delighted that uh, we have Marvin Kelb uh, with us today. Uh, you're in the Kelb room. Uh, we sometimes call it T275, but it is the Kelb room. And uh, Marvin, of course, is the center's founding director, uh, was the Edward R. Murrow Professor of Princeton Public Policy here for uh, a stretch and uh, 30 years uh, in the industry with CBS, NBC, uh, Moscow Chief, uh, Chief Foreign Correspondent, uh, host of uh, Meet the Press, um, and has a new book, um, Imperial Gamble, Putin, Ukraine, and the New Cold War. So, Marvin, welcome back. Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you. Thank you. And to see so many familiar faces around the table and around the room. So thank you all for coming. I appreciate that. Um, I think, um, at least I'm told that I've got about 10 or 15 minutes, which in the old days in television news would be an eternity. Uh, But today, over the last 25 years, I've learned to speak in hour length categories. And so I will squeeze it down as best I can, but no guarantees. What I would like to do and what I think might, I hope, be interesting to you is to talk about the theme of this new book, Imperial Gamble. Um, In February, March really, of 2014, the new director of uh, book publishing at Brookings, a wonderful woman named Valentina Kalk, Um, raised with me the idea of doing something on what had just happened in Crimea. And what had just happened was that the Russians with little green men operating out of dark corners, uh, barely with a shot fired, took over the the peninsula of Crimea and claiming all the time that they were not doing anything in any way offensive and that they were simply responding to what the people of Crimea wanted. And I was uh, fascinated by what was happening because it fit into a pattern of Russian history that I had been studying for many, many uh, decades, really, as I look back upon it. You know, when you accumulate years, Tom, it's difficult to imagine how fast the decades pass, but they do. And I I remember the times that I would visit in Crimea, the times that I would visit in Ukraine, and when she asked me whether I would do this book, I said, after due deliberation for about three seconds, yes. That, That is something that I would love to do. And I had a marvelous time doing it. I was totally in charge of, of myself. I did all of the research, the interviewing, the going back actually to look at lectures that I might have done (coughs) here as a section man for Professor Karpovich many, many years ago, and looked about what it is that we were thinking was Russian. What did Russians think belonged to them, and what did the rest of the world think? And as the leader of Russia, Vladimir Putin, is a very interesting figure. He is supremely self-confident. He feels that he is in uh, a historical line going back to the czars and including people like Stalin during the Soviet period. For him to take Crimea meant nothing. He didn't care about what the rest of the world thought. For him, the idea was that he needed something to 
galvanize a nationalistic upsurge within Russia. And Crimea was the best of them all. Crimea was uh, proclaimed to be Russian in 1783 by Catherine the Great. And when she proclaimed it to be Russian, it even then was not a big deal because it was considered to be Russian and if not Russian, sort of almost Russian. But he, so he took it. And the idea then of Ukraine followed right on. And one of the things that I was able to do was to do what in journalism we call a TikTok, where, where you go day by day on what had happened those days and you, with interviews and your own knowledge and a gut feeling, and then what it is that Russians were saying in that TikTok, you had from November of 2013 a buildup in Kiev, which came to be called the Maidan demonstrations, of a powerful nationalism. And there was no question about its power and no question about its authenticity. They were people who were speaking of themselves really for the first time in their history as an independent country. And they wanted to be recognized as independent. Now, as far as Putin was concerned, he would look upon the Ukrainians and say, you guys want to call yourselves independent? Fine with me. But you don't do anything that runs against the grain of, America, of uh, Russian national interest as I, Putin, determine those interests to be. So he was playing games, but at the same time, he was not. He was very serious about that point. One of the things about uh, Putin that must be recognized is that he is terrified of demonstrations that he did not organize. If there is a demonstration that he organized, he's all for it. Those that he did not organize, he fears. And this goes back uh, to the time when he was a KGB officer running the KGB operation in Dresden, East Germany. And when the East Germans rose up in the tail end of the 1980s against communist rule. At that time, Putin was in charge and he was quite frightened by what it is that he was seeing. He was seeing the disintegration of established authority. And that is something that he's not used to, didn't like it, considered it completely negative, and that to the degree that he could control it, he would. He called at one time, there's a very interesting um, exchange of, of transcripts of telephone calls that Putin made with both his boss up in Berlin, in East Berlin, and in Moscow. And the boss in East Berlin, when Putin called and said, what am I to do? The boss said at that time, do whatever you wish, which was not the way his mind worked. He didn't do what he wished. He did what he was told. And that is the way government was supposed to work. And then he called Moscow, and Moscow did not answer, did not answer the phone. And he made up his mind at that point that there will never again be a time when someone calls Moscow and no one answers. There will always be somebody there and someone in charge. That lesson uh, from Dresden was carried to his reaction to the Orange Revolution in 2004 in Ukraine, which was the first opportunity after the proclamation of Ukrainian independence in 1991, the first opportunity really for the Ukrainian people to state their views. And they couldn't state it within the confines of the political system as established at that time, although there were elections. And so they went out into the streets. When they went out into the streets, that sent a signal up in Moscow with Putin. Unacceptable. This is something that cannot be allowed to happen. He asked himself at that time, I presume, what do I do about this? I don't like it, but do I send in the army? And he alerted the army, but didn't send them in. And for whatever reason it was, at the end of the day, he decided that he would live with it 
so long as he could continue to control the political process from within, which he was able to do using politicians from the eastern part of Ukraine. And in the eastern part of Ukraine, you had people who were very, very sympathetic to the, Ukraine, to the Russians. Very sympathetic. Not all of them, but many of them. And if one had to ask where would public opinion be at that time in the eastern part of Ukraine, it was pro-Russian. Because what was happening in Kiev was unusual even for Ukrainians. Because if you think back, Ukraine never had a democratic system, had never been independent at all, had always been either formally a part of Russia or informally a part of Russia. But it was never on its own until 1991. And it didn't know how to manage. And so it struggled and corruption rampant. Um, oligarchs really in charge of the country. Many, many young people desiring democracy. But they didn't know exactly how to get it. And so they were stuck. And when the repeat of, of these un-Putin-controlled demonstrations recurred in November of 2013, Putin knew that he had trouble, serious trouble. And in December, he alerted his military that action may have to be taken very soon in Kiev. He tried to work with Yanukovych, his guy at that time, the president. But Yanukovych is, was, is, he's, he's somewhere in Russia. Um, he is um, a typical Soviet-style politician. He doesn't, he didn't do anything very much on his own. When he did, he'd be afraid to really carry it to the next step and make it happen. And Putin lost total confidence in him and realized that if something had to happen, he was going to be the man who called the shot. And he was not afraid of calling the shot either. And in this TikTok, if you go from through December, through January, and through February, you will see the thing build up day by day. And toward the end of February, you'll all remember the Sochi Winter Olympics, which the Russians won by getting the most number of prizes. The minute it was over, Putin sent the army first to do the job in um, Crimea, and then to begin to do essentially the same job in Donetsk and Luhansk in the Donbas region, the southeastern part of Ukraine. He could not allow, or he would not allow, the idea of democracy as it was unfolding in Kiev to spill over the border into Russia, that was one. He is terrified by the idea of crowds determining um, the status of an established government, whether it's voted in or not, is irrelevant to him. But if it's there running things and maintaining order, you don't mess with it. Parenthesis, Syria today, close paren. And so the army was sent in and for a period of a year, we all know what happened. There was the civil war. And at this particular point, starting on September 1, Putin made up his mind that he wasn't getting very far with this operation. But he had, within his world, he had won his little war in Ukraine. He never had to occupy all of it, didn't want to. It would have been a, a, a huge pain in the neck, and he didn't need it. What he needed was the opportunity to stop and control the political and economic life of that country. And that is what he has effectively been able to do. The shame of it for the Ukrainians is that they had an opportunity for 25 years to begin to take the steps towards a properly functioning economy and a democratic system. And they have made progress. There's no question about that. Um, 
but they never were able to carry that progress truly forward, and it will need, in my judgment, but not just in mine, it's, it's going to take another generation or two, all other things being equal, before Ukraine can become a stand-up functioning state. And up until that time, and I'll wrap up now, up until that time, there's going to be the need, in my judgment, for some kind of acceptable modus vivendi between Ukraine and Russia. There can always be a Gorbachev arising in Russian history. And if there were, and we were in the early phase of a Gorbachev experience, it would be possible to imagine a Russian thinking much more sympathetically about an independent Ukraine. But more than likely, the next ruler of Russia, after Putin, will be more like Putin and maybe even more so, by which I mean a leader in the tradition of a Vojd, a strong Russian leader, whether it be a Peter the Great type or a Stalin type, but a strong leader in charge. And the argument with many, many Russians is that that is really what we want deep down, a strong leader. And um, until we get another Gorbachev, Tom, I think that that is roughly where we are at this point. And it was, um, again, a, a very exciting, um, both journalistic and historical um, experience for me to fiddle around with, with the facts and to go back into old history books. and. Um, Really great fun. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Marvin. So uh, our tradition here is that we privilege the students for the first few questions. Uh, and if you could, um, in asking your question, if you could first identify yourself, please. Good morning. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Rose Edwards, and I'm a new career. In my normal life, I'm a diplomat and served in Moscow and then here. Fantastic. Right. So what you say is also feels personal. Um, um, I agree with what you said with regards Putin's perspective on power systems. Um, I think there's a danger that you buy into his power system if you suggest that Ukrainians themselves do not have a voice. So if one presents it in terms of only Putin making choices, and that's a bit like Mm -hmm. um, my understanding of um, power dynamics in Ukraine versus Russia, uh, as you say, Putin's scared of the demonstrations of the people, but beyond that, um, Ukraine really is an, an, a system of oligarchs where there is shared power between those people. Um, and I think the outcome of 2004 was decided by the oligarchs deciding which way to cut the cake mm -hmm. as much as Putin's decision. I think Putin, with Robert Kodakovsky and everyone else, has done everything he can to pre prevent mm -hmm. oligarchy shared power in Russia. And I think that's the distinction. So if you can buy into the oligarchy's power systems in Ukraine, you don't have to buy into, you don't have to wait for Gorbachev. No, I, I totally agree with what you've just said. And, and even to amplify it, you Right now, they had an election just a couple of days ago in Ukraine. It was a local election, the first one they've had in a while. And what emerged out of that was everything. There were parts of it that worked very well. There were parts of it that went right back to the old days. And there were parts of it that where the oligarchs reasserted their control over some of the key cities. And there was even a fear among a number of people that the old days were returning. In other words, rather than use the elections as a jump-off point to more democracy, they were actually stuck. Uh, but it was all over the place. There were places where the democracy did work. <clears throat> my, my, um, I've had a, a lot of wonderful experience talking with Ukrainians who've just come back, and and almost every single one of them um, who were excited by Maidan, who really felt this is our moment, this is our time, are now more disheartened 
than some of the people who looked with negative feelings upon Maidan because they turned out in a way to be more realistic. The people at Maidan wanted it all and they wanted it then. And if you could have taken Ukraine and moved it to another part of the world, maybe that could have worked. But Ukraine is where it is. And it, its history cannot be escaped. It is what it is too. And so that's why I'm, I feel that the only way you can sort of work your way out of it is to find a mutually acceptable modus vivendi, where both sides see the advantage of yielding a little bit, giving a little bit, but retaining control at the same time. And I'm talking about Ukrainians retaining control as well as the Russians. But it's going to take time. And, and I fear in Washington, where I live and, and work, uh, there is an, an unrealistic sense of what is happening in Ukraine. There is an exaggerated sense that democracy can be picked up so easily. There is a dismissal of, um, of Russia just as an evil power. Um, yeah, in many ways, but no in other ways. I mean, when Hillary Clinton, at, right after um, Crimea was taken, Hillary Clinton at one point offhandedly seemed to refer to Putin as Hitler. That instinct at work, not just with Hillary Clinton, but with a lot of people, uh, Republican and Democratic, was so wrong, was totally wrong. But it was easy to believe it. It was easy for this country to fall back into a kind of Cold War mentality rather than to deal with the reality of what faced them. It, it, I'm not saying it's easy in any way. I am saying that there is another way of doing it. Please. Or high expectations that the West has had of Putin has had an impact on his behavior. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the House of, uh, of Lords came out with a report eight months after Crimea was taken. And you remember that incredible phrase that they accused the Western leaders of sleepwalking through history. And I'm afraid it was not just uh, the people in Western Europe, but the people in Washington as well. <clears throat> it was easy to believe that we had turned a meaningful new page in East-West relations. But you can only believe that if you paid no attention at all to what it is that Putin was saying and doing. The amazing thing about Putin is that he is not that much of a mystery. The guy talks constantly, <laughs> uh, whether there's a camera there or not. He is capable now of sitting down and doing three-hour interviews with reporters without a note in front of him. He is quick-minded. Um, um, as I said before, amazingly self-confident, convinced that when he makes a decision, it's the right one. I don't think that he loses sleep over something that might go wrong. There was um, a piece in the Washington Post uh, two Saturdays ago written by David Hoffman, who was a terrific reporter. And he went back to a 2003 or seven CIA report about what was going on in Russia way back in 1983. Now, the reason I mention this is that it's, it answers your, attempts to answer your question. Um, in 1983, according to this report, Russian leaders believed that Western military maneuvers in Western Europe 
were a prelude to a direct nuclear attack on Russia. Uh, and so they began to do things in anticipation of that kind of an attack. And actually both sides upped the ante until they realized neither side really wanted the war. And so they slowly pulled back. At the end of the CIA report, one of the things that jumped out at me in light of, of the question that you raised is, what do we really know about Putin? And if we would take a measure of that, why is it that we know so little? Why is it that it was so difficult for Western leaders to anticipate what it is that Putin would do? It really wasn't. If you read him, if you understood something about Russian history and put the two together, um, I can tell you that flat out in, in researching this, I went back and looked at all kinds of stuff that the Brookings people were doing. In January and February, during the Sochi Olympic Games, about Putin and what his strategy might be. And I'm happy to say I participated in this. And there was a report that was put out on February 6th of 2014, in which we said, within a matter of weeks, there would be a Russian move and this is roughly what he would do. It was there, and it was there for people who had no clearance to look at secret documents. You just had to open your eyes, read, and appreciate the value of history, and try to place current leaders within their historical context. And you can learn a lot more, really. Please. My name is Tim Outram, I'm a mid-career student here, and I'm also an Army officer. So the question I have is, one of the legacies of the Soviet Union is that, you know, through forced resettlement, there are Russians living throughout all the countries of the former Soviet Union, and so there are Russian minorities all, in all those countries. So the way I see it, you know, the same pretext that, that Putin used to go into Crimea and the Donbass, could he use the same thing as an excuse to go into any, any country that has, a, you know, ethnic Russians living there. Yeah, the, the answer is, be persecuted. Yeah, absolutely is. Yes. Or is this an alley, or are we going to see more of the same? <clears throat> he has said this, he says this once every week, if you read him. What he says was that it, the great tragedy of 1991, when the Soviet Union disintegrated, communism died, the great tragedy of at that time was that overnight, when the Soviet Union disintegrated and there was just Russia left and, and independent countries around it. He says the great tragedy was that 26 million Russians suddenly found themselves in foreign countries and that this is wrong. And that if those, <laughs> this is where he's very clever and he'll play with words here. If these people want to return to us, well, obvious. They should have every right to do that. So yes, he sets it up so that should he choose, for whatever reason, to move into one of these other places, he has set up his pretext. There's no question about it. But I use the word pretext, and it's a negative word here. It could be that he actually believes all of that. And that though it may be difficult for us to see that, and appreciate it, it could be precisely what he is thinking. And it isn't just Putin, by the way. Don't, don't be misled into thinking that he is on top of a mountain somewhere by himself. He is not. He is very much in line with uh, what many Russians think. Um, it, it's very hard to stress too much because you bend over and actually end up distorting. But when you read Russian literature of today, and you read something, for example, that, that Solzhenitsyn was writing 15, 20 years ago, right after the 1991 breakup, Solzhenitsyn wrote passionately about the responsibility of any Russian leader 
to protect these 26 million Russians living in foreign lands, you know, that sort of thing. The reason that Ukraine is not really a foreign land is that it isn't really a foreign land. You know, you, you can, Ukrainians today um, have every right to be proud of their in independence, but they should not exaggerate the degree to which Ukrainians felt independent of Russia and say that this went back hundreds of years. I've heard Ukrainian nationalists speak. As a matter of fact, I find it very interesting that the only criticism I have got on this book has been from, from the American-Ukrainian community. And I appreciate that. And I don't like it, but I can appreciate it because I can see them feeling that we've been independent now and, and we have every right to be, and we've always been, but that's not true. That's historically simply not true. So we're gonna, I, I fear we're gonna be involved with this Ukrainian problem for many years now. Okay, so we're gonna open it up to the table. Uh, David, yeah. I'm Marvin. Uh, yes, sir. David Ensor, I'm a fellow here right now, and once was honored to be uh, Marvin's colleague Colleen? covering the foreign, right. covering foreign policy right. uh, for the television networks. Um, in, I wonder what insights you might offer. What, what is your view now of Obama's policy towards uh, Russia, Russia's moves in Crimea and East Ukraine in light of the kinds of insights you've gleaned writing this book. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just add that I think, and you, it sounds like you may not think, no, no, that um, they didn't do enough in response. Who, who did not do enough? The Obama administration. Uh, not that, uh, that there should be, you know, large amounts of weapons supplied to the Ukrainians or a threat of war or anything like that. But that um, the NATO alliance, and particularly its newer members, are more than a little scared now. Absolutely. And don't feel that they got a reassuring sense that Article 5 holds for them. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? Well, the president uh, last year went to Tallinn and, um, in the Baltics, and he said in a speech that the White House was trumpeting as being a great statement of American policy, that um, if you, the words were something like, I know that you have been frightened by what it is that the Russians may do. Don't be. We are here, we are solidly behind you, and blah, 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 all of those words. And if the, he was very explicit, if the Russians move, we will be loyal to Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. Okay. What I would suggest is talk now to the people and the leaders of the Baltic and ask them, in light of what the President said, are you now comfortable that if the Russians moved, you would be protected by the United States? And the answer uniformly is we are not comfortable. And what they would like for the United States to do now is to do what you started saying you don't really mean, which is to move military force in. There's an interesting way of thinking about using diplomacy to accomplish a specific aim. There are some people among the leaders of the world who feel, and President Obama fits into this category, who feels that if you see a problem coming down the road, you want to head it off. And what you do is do everything you can, not military, to accomplish that aim. Always having in mind that at the end of the day, you may fail and you're going to have to use the military. But you really go all the way first on diplomacy. And then there's the other point of view, which is represented by Putin, which is that you see something coming down the road, the first thing you do, not the last, the first thing you do is move the troops in. Then you've established a presence. And the Israelis have done this over many, many years now. It's, you establish a presence on the ground that then has to be dealt with. 
Now, you can remove that presence. You can negotiate your way out of these things. But you, in this mindset is you enhance your position by putting the troops in first. Then you talk. And I believe that that collision of these two interests and these two visions of diplomacy clearly were in evidence over the last year and a half. The president is not only with Putin and not only in Ukraine, but really all over the world. And <laughs> I say this w with total honesty. I sympathize with the man. I feel he's doing the right thing in the wrong universe. <laughs> what he's doing is right. He is trying to do good things with Syria, Ukraine, China, whatever. But it isn't the way the world is today, in my judgment. And therefore, I think that he is um, unfortunately allowing Putin to believe that he can get his way. So Francis. Can I just follow up just to make sure I clarify? Because I think in that last part of your answer, you were in effect saying the president did not do enough. And for example, perhaps you might favor maybe the president in the first week after the invasion of Crimea should have said something like, look, I'm not going to war with you, but we are building an air base in, in Estonia next week. We are putting in 46 F-15s, yeah, they're but, never going to leave. But Obama is not a fool, and he knows very well, and, and Putin is not a fool either. So, again, don't play games with me. The worst thing you can do with Russians is, at this point, is play games with them. Say one thing, but not mean it, and do something else. If you want to move troops in, tell them. You guys have done something we don't approve of. And we're going to move our troops in to make it clear to you that we don't approve of this. But that's not the way Obama works. He sees it differently, that you, you appeal to the mind, the history, the reasoning, logic, philosophy of getting your way. Sorry. Francis. <laughs> Francis Bontour, I think I remember him. <laughs> yes, indeed. Martin, <laughs> slightly off-the-wall question, a few of them related. Post-Putin, it's a little early. What happens? The succession problem. To why is he there? What's in his head about China and Russian-Chinese relations and what he should do about that? Hmm. Well, the first, the f first of all, Francis, I'm delighted to see you. Delighted to see you here. Um, let me do the China part. Um, you remember immediately after Crimea, one of the president's first statements, in fact, and he had other people say it also, was that we're going to move with sanctions. And we're going to move diplomatically to isolate Putin and Russia. Putin, hearing this, immediately turned east and went to China and struck a huge deal with them, a 10, 20-year deal or something, on gas and oil, which are instruments that he can play with. Putin might have thought that by moving toward China and striking this deal, he is saying to, to Obama, who cares what you do? I've got China here. Um, there are two things wrong with that. One, the president didn't believe him, and it isn't that big a deal. And second, history here, which also plays in the president's favor. There is very little to believe that if you peel through the history of Russian-Chinese relations, you're going to find cheerful friendship. Quite the contrary. They have been not at war, but they, they've been in, in minor wars, but nothing big but an enormous amount of hostility and suspicion of the deepest sort. And so neither one, neither the Chinese leader or, or the um, Russian leader is going to believe any of that stuff. So my sense is that they're not really going to accomplish all that much. However, it's a natural step for him to make, and in the short term, it's a good thing, you know. Um, the first part of your question has just slipped my mind, Francis. Succession. 
this, the the politics right and this is something that is extremely important and difficult to read into right now but as i was implying uh, earlier if anyone believes that the that the russian ruler after putin is going to be like more like gorbachev somebody like that seeking accommodation with the west uh, stop dreaming. That is not likely to happen at all. The people who have power in Russia today are the people who used to be KGB. They're all around Putin, and that number uh, has shrunk over the last 10 or 15 years. So that the number of people he can actually count on is less now than the number he brought in with him which means that he is surrounded by fewer people who are giving him the information and the advice that he wants, that he really is God's gift to Russia. And you have to be in that mode. There is not, you know, I, have, <laughs> I have been up and down on this issue for 20, 30, 40 years now. I used to feel, in 1956, I was a young person working at the American Embassy in Moscow as an interpreter and translator. I used to feel at that time, when I listened to young people like Gorbachev, who was then in college, and they spoke about communism in a skeptical way, some of them outright anti-communist. And I was saying to myself, this is Russia. This is beautiful. They're going to rise up one day, and they will take over. And when they do, we will have something like democracy. And they sort of did that with Gorbachev in the mid-1980s. And for two or three years, we actually thought it was going to happen. And then the minute communism as a system died, and Russia went into a period of the deepest destabilization of the economy, the politics and all. They fell back into doing what was more natural. And Putin recognized that immediately. And Yeltsin, toward the end of his time in office, was, uh, this is not a nice, thing, nice way to put it, but he was a drunk and he could not manage the country. And here was this young man from St. Petersburg, KGB, he knew how to do things. KGB always knew how to do things. And he came in and the first thing he did was all of the governors who were allowed under Yeltsin to be elected independent of the government itself. That's the end of that. Enough of that playing around with these ideas. Everything was controlled out of Moscow. Same thing as during the communist period. And these are the people who currently are in charge and I think will remain in charge after Putin uh, leaves. I, it would be, I cannot imagine that shock to the Russian <coughs> system to go from somebody like Putin back to somebody like Gorbachev. I just don't see it. I, w I wish that it were different. <laughs> Please. I'm Bob Eckert from the Advanced Leadership Program, and it's a privilege to be here at the table with you, sir. Is there a step that the Russians could take that would cause the U.S. to take military action, either under the current president? The, the thinking, here I am reflecting government and think tank Washington, D.C. Their concern is on two levels. One is what is now happening in Syria, and that in a very small space, you have Russian planes and American planes flying around. And the idea that you move this absurd number of 50 um, special forces into Syria. I was mentioning this, Tom, before, that if you can imagine what would happen in Washington if one one of the 50 were picked up by ISIS and beheaded. 
just imagine the White House announcement, what the Pentagon will instantly begin to think and do, and what the Congress would do. There is a nuttiness in Washington now, and that nuttiness could lead uh, to frightening action. And so I can only say that that is one area where there's a lot, and the other is the Baltic, which is always the most sensitive place. Martin, frightening action, go on, e.g. Francis, that if if um, an American special force soldier were killed and beheaded, I, I think there is a likelihood that the United States would take strong military action, not against Russia, but against Russian positions. I think you could get into a terrible mess there. And that's why I personally am terrified right now about the Syrian thing. A little less so on the Baltic, but in the Baltic it could happen overnight. Because once again, um, you take a country like um, Latvia, I believe it's Latvia, has a Russian population of 24%. One out of four is Russian. And if they decide to call on Moscow for help or something like that, these it's all very, very sensitive stuff, but it's all right there to look at. And when you look at it, you get scared to death. Please. Stan Tudell. Hi, Two questions. Um, you, you said that uh, the Estonians and others don't believe uh, that the U.S. Uh, NATO would be there. Um, the first question is, does Putin believe that NATO would be there, which is perhaps the most important. Most important, question. absolutely. Uh, the second question is, if you were advising our next president, uh, say something about the strategy and tactics. The strategy the should be the strategy and tactics that the West should mm -hmm. be pursuing. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of laughing to myself when you ask that question. By the way, because it's the one I've been asked more than any other, and to me it reflects a general uncertainty among a lot of people as to what the heck are we involved in here because we don't have core beliefs. We don't have an overarching strategic vision of where the heck we are and what it is that we should do. That's why a question that comes up in this area is so difficult to answer. Um, I try very hard to stay away from uh, answers to that. My only, my only sense is, please, read a history book about some parts of the world that we're getting involved in. When we think about the Middle East, please do understand that there are, that Iran, in a way, is something similar to Russia here. Um, Iran was once the Persian Empire had a lot of land, considered one of the most far-reaching uh, empires, advanced, did all kinds of things, went all over. They don't want to be treated um, as anything other than a great power. And we have to fit that into our calculation. Same with the Russians. It doesn't mean you're giving away the kitchen sink. I've always found in dealing with Russians, the best thing you can do, and this is the only advice I would pass on, if you have something in mind with the Russians, tell them. Tell them up front what you have in mind. And if you know in advance that they're not going to like it, you can begin the discussion by saying, Mr. President, I know you're not going to like this, but this is what we're going to do, and we want you to know about it in advance. Putin was at the UN a couple of months ago. He was there for seven hours, created a firestorm all over the place. He met with the president for an hour and a half, never told him that he was going to move military force into Syria. 
They were already, they have things there, but build it up. Never told him. The president was furious with that. Um, in dealing, Putin feels he can do that because he feels that's what we were doing to him. He is, um, you, it, it's very difficult, and I appreciate this, it, it's very difficult to put yourself in the mind of people who, f who feel that they have been wronged and that people have not paid proper attention to them. Now, what does it mean to, to pay proper attention? I mean, if it's somebody's birthday, you get up in the morning, and the first thing you do is to say, happy birthday. Live with, with basic things and level rather than um, some of the things that we have been doing and the Russians have been doing, and that's why it is very dangerous, because both sides are not, neither side is leveling with the other. So we got to, we play games about how, what is Putin really thinking? Steve, back in the... Uh, Steve Jardim here from North Saturday. I'd like to be interested in your comment on whether you think the European Union's response to Putin's uh, entrance into Korea was enough. I know Merkel took some heat that I think it's 52% of Russian trade goes to the EU and only 2% goes from the EU to Russia, that there was an economic uh, possibility that right. was missed. And I'd like to, your comment on that, number one. Number two, there's a lot of folks who feel the current leadership in the Ukraine is not going to survive. Um, is there any leadership? Sakopili is considered, I think, somebody that's hanging out there. Is there anybody out there that can do anything different in the Ukraine? Yeah. Um, well, on the EU first, um, yeah, well, what the EU was doing was roughly what it is that the leadership of the Western world, as we know it, was suggesting, and that, and that was the sanctions, right? Um, then it becomes a matter of how long the sanctions are going to stay in place. And the West Europeans are already whispering, not saying out loud, but whispering, that they want these things to end because it's hurting them economically. The Germans are even beginning to talk about ways in which we can cut back. And I would not be a bit surprised if the Germans and the Russians were talking about what is happening now in Syria as a way of dealing with the refugee crisis in Western Europe, that they all see this as part of a common problem. and. It could be, it could be that the EU um, could do something out of the ordinary, but I do not believe that is in the cards. Realistically, there's nothing that I know about anyway in Western Europe that would suggest that they're going to do something either outrageous or brilliant or anything like that. They're going to play this game and they're going to end up yielding in one way or another, and I hope it is not too embarrassing uh, to the West when it happens. Um, and that second question? Oh, in Ukraine. <coughs> well, um, the Prime Minister of Ukraine thought so little of his chances in the last election, he didn't put forth any candidate of his own party, and yet he's the Prime Minister. And I can, I can share with you that um, Someone who knows about what goes on in Ukraine a great deal uh, told me the other day that the word in Kiev is that there is now evidence that the prime minister has taken a $1 million payoff on, uh, from one of the uh, oligarchs. Uh, and he was supposed to be the guy pure as a whistle, you know. All right, so. If that, is, if that word is already reaching Washington, you know that it's all over Kiev. And the idea that you raise that there could be a changing government seems to me very realistic. But then what happens? Who are the people who come in? And this is what I was trying to say before in a different way, that they have a lot of homework to do. It took us in this country a long time to get going. And it's going to take them a long time to get going. 
We were over here, more or less alone. We can fiddle around and do our thing. They can't, because they share this very long border with Russia, and Russia is the stronger of the two powers. And you've got to keep that in mind. So, you know, a lot of people have said to me that when I call for this mutual modus vivendi between the two sides, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. You know, the Russian, yeah. At the end of that negotiation, the Russians are going to get the better of the deal. There's no question about that. But if at the end of that deal there is still an independent Ukraine doing its thing with the rest of the world, so long as it is done in a, if possible to do this, in a non-antagonistic way toward the Russians, I think that Putin or anyone following him will live with that. We have time for one more question. <coughs> <laughs> Marvin, in your research, did you get some sense of who are the people who are advising Putin? And <coughs> what does he think at the end of his presidential term? Because it's hard to believe that he would walk away from the power that he now has. Nick, I totally agree with you on that last point, especially that it would be very hard to imagine him leaving this job because he has come to believe that he is Russia. And the people around him have said this openly to reporters, that we believe that right now Putin is Russia, Russia is Putin. And so we, so we are Russian nationalists, so we support Putin. Um, Putin is, um, He's not a communist, and he's not a fascist, and he's not a Democrat, and he's not a member of the Republican Party. He is the head of a make-believe party that he put together with his own people, all more or less loyal to him. And there was that group that came down with him, uh, former KGB people, most of them, came down with him, as you well know, from St. Petersburg. And they effectively ran the economy and the country. There are now fewer of them. And as those numbers dwindle, Putin has fewer people to talk to. And that's one of the dangers, that he is going to end up being the only one looking at himself in the mirror in the morning and deciding that he is brilliant and what he is doing is absolutely right for Russia and the world. Well, does but, that mean that uh, he has to declare a state of emergency to prolong his powers? Does he need to amend the Constitution? Effectively, there is a state of emergency now, only it's not called that. Effectively, he has proclaimed that the state, it is me, and I'm the guy, and, and most people accept that. The, when, when Nemtsov was, was, was murdered, uh, six, eight months ago, um, you would have thought somehow that the people in opposition could find the means of saying something that would represent political opposition, but they couldn't. It is that weak, splintered, Putin has effectively uh, emasculated um, political opposition, and so he's it. And, and the Russians are left at this point, struggling to come up, um, I was about to say, with a new definition of political power, but I don't think that's true at all. I don't think they're struggling with that. I think they're struggling to survive. The, the, the people are trying very hard to live in an increasingly difficult economic situation. There are reports now of, of strikes, mini strikes, taking place all over the country crushed within a day, uh, of people not being paid their wage, that instead of being paid every week, they're being paid once a month. This can continue for who knows how long, but at a certain point in the tradition of Russian history, there'll be an explosion. But when that will be, what form it will take, who will be in charge of it, Having a clue. Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you, Marvin. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. 
Music provided by extrememusic.com.